Welcome to the Post Sunday Podcast, presented by Genesis Church. A place to go further, discover more, and to learn things you possibly never have. It's not just enough to know of God, we want you to know Him. Coming to you from sunny Orlando, Florida, it's time to rethink life the way God intended. This is the Genesis Post Sunday Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Post Sunday Podcast. This podcast is an extension of Genesis Church located in Orlando, Florida. Every Sunday, you can attend one of our three amazing services at 8.15, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Or if you don't live in Florida, you can stream live on Facebook and YouTube at Genesis Church Orlando. You can also watch on demand and as always, follow us all week long on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and X at Post Sunday Podcast. And also, make sure to subscribe to listen every week on Spotify and iTunes. Now, for today's episode, here are your hosts, Pastor Johnny Sierra and Pastor Tim Grandstaff. What is going on, Post Sunday Podcasters? We are here, episode six. I'm your host, Pastor Johnny Sierra, along with my co-host, Pastor Tim Grandstaff. And I will have to say, man, I am amongst titans today. Today's a combo punch. Last week, Dr. Matt Wilmington. This week, another special guest. Oh, man. So it's going to be good. Yes, I'm excited for it. This is, it's like, uh, you know, a rendition of the Chiefs back-to-back championships. We get back-to-back Special guests. What kind of? I, that you know. I'm the sorry. energy's high though. Energy's we were all really up late high. last oh, night. Yeah. That was a long, long <laughs> Super Bowl game. I'm thinking in my head, who is staying up right now to watch this? Yeah, my <laughs> wife bowed out at overtime. I started kind of like feeling it a little bit, but we're here. Our guest is a diehard 49ers fan. So, oh, man, still a good game. Still, it was a, it was, it was an epic Super Bowl game. So you, you can't, you can't complain about yeah, that. No, That's fantastic. Not now not that you've heard his voice, seen his face, <laughs> this is the the famous Mark Moore. That's right. And uh, so let me let me give you all a little backdrop to who he is, especially if you don't attend Genesis Church. He wasn't just a guest yesterday in our services. He's been someone that's been instrumental in my life. Uh, he's the teaching pastor at CCV, which is Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, um, which he uh, he gets to preach and teach out there to a bunch of people. Uh, he's an author um, of many, many books. Uh, Quest 52 is a book that is we are using yes. not just in conjunction with Sunday mornings at Genesis Church, but also with this podcast. And so you can find that on Amazon, Quest 52 by Mark Moore. Um, other books as well. Um, I got the Chronological Life of Jesus that my man wrote, so mm-hmm. I've been using that as well. Uh, but I got to know him by uh, joining a pastor cohort is what they call it. 10 of us from around the country for a full year in a group. And so it was going to be training and coaching primarily on preaching and communication. And so I had no idea who he was. Went to Phoenix, Arizona for three days in an Airbnb. It was the first time I met him. We got to go to New York together for three days, San Diego together for three days. And then in between throughout the year, there were Zoom calls and phone calls and, and all that that was involved as well. And so I got to kind of sit at his feet um, and be coached and trained by him. So he's been instrumental in my life. 
uh, instrumental in this church. And then for those that are with us and are studying and learning and growing and being discipled through this podcast, uh, that Quest 52 book has really been kind of a guide map that we are using throughout the year. So it's a great resource to have for extra content as well. So you would have Sunday morning, you'd have the pod, and then you have the book. And so in a nutshell, that's all of it. But this is Mark Moore. That's Mark, great to be here, guys. So good to have you, man. Um, I will say I've known Tim for four years now. And uh, and since he's been in your cohort, uh, I can see the level of his teaching just mm. just gets so sharp, man. You know, and, and for me, I, I judge that, man. How 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 much are you continuing to grow? Mm. as a leader, right? You're not capping yourself. And so it's beautiful to see that my leader is desiring to grow. It motivates me to want to grow and get better. So thank you for that, man. Well, it was something interesting about Tim in the cohort. Uh, if you look at all preachers, well, all communicators uh, are three parts, head, heart, hands. Mm. And every communicator will lean into one of those three more. Uh, I lean into head. I'm the, you know, the Bible nerd geek guy, I love college, love teaching. Most pastors are heart communicators. It's just the, kind of the nature where they feel really heavy. They, they love people, and they want to make sure that people feel loved. There are very few communicators that are hand communicators, unless you go into, like, professional sports. All coaches are hand communicators. They, they want to make sure they, they know they want you to know they care yeah they want you to understand some things about the game but primarily they're going here is how you grow Tim is one of those rare pastors that are actually hand communicators that he he does have his heart does have the head as well but he is part of why Genesis has been so successful is he's telling people how to take their next steps to actually grow the church and grow their families and their own personal lives. So he was, he was kind of unique in the cohort for that. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a stud. I love him. I'm thankful for him to be. I got, I got hands. I got, I got, I'll take it. <laughs> Fast hands. We, we got this. He's a big uh, Rocky fan. So uh -huh. he's, uh, oh, yeah. I'm huge. I cried last week when Apollo Creed died. Know, Just had to get away for a moment yeah. and shed a tear and then come back to life. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, so I'm super I'm thankful for that, man. It's, it's made all of us better um, amongst pastors. But uh, episode six, man, we are here. It's been the way of the Messiah all year long. Uh, 52 weeks of straight Jesus. Mm -hmm. That is that that's that's the specialty for you. Uh, you've written multiple books of just the focus and detail of Jesus's life. And uh, who better to have. Right. And so we episode six here, we're going to talk about uh, Mark chapter one. And you discussed uh, we we highlighted the the baptismal of Jesus. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I love about these things, it's like. We're sitting here, Tim and I, like, oh, my gosh, man, we, we, we're not even doing baptisms on this Sunday, you know? Like, oh, how are we going to make this work? But the beauty is, like, we, we don't even need to. Like, the message itself speaks so much about life change, about turning your life around, not necessarily in the sense of act, we want to encourage people to get baptized, but the way you brought it on Sunday was just amazing in, the, in, the, in the being able to shift people's perspective of, yeah, go get baptized, but this is what it means to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's awesome that people need that definition, that revelation before things can change in their life, right? Yeah, baptism is, is, is actually a really brilliant idea from God. 
and different denominations will debate of its theological role or you know when to get baptized, all that. But what I think our, our debates are unfortunate because it somehow covers over the gift of baptism. I'll just give you one little Easter egg. Baptism, if you look at all the cultures in the world, some are shame-based cultures and some are guilt-based cultures. We're a guilt-based culture. Guilt-based cultures are individualistic cultures. Like, we're, we're individuals, right? When you sin or when you, when you whatever you want to call that, you, you, you violate a rule in your own heart and head, we feel guilt about it. Because guilt-based cultures say, here's a line, don't cross the line. Shame-based cultures are group cultures. So think about uh, most of the Southern Hemisphere, most of, of Asia and the Far East. They're, uh, they're shame-based cultures, so the line is not on the floor, it's on the wall, and you have to measure up to the family, measure up to the community. And if you don't measure up, you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting the community down. Baptism is the only religious ritual that I'm aware of, of any religion, that is equally powerful in shame-based cultures and in guilt-based cultures. Wow. Because you're individually baptized for your own sin, so you, you sense the, you know, I'm guilty, I need, I need my sins forgiven, but it also connects you, you're baptized into the body of Christ. So God knew what he was doing. And, you know, it's, it's pretty common for people when they put their faith in Jesus to say the sinner's prayer, right? I bet, Johnny, you, you can't, maybe you can, most people cannot recite, okay, here's exactly what I said in the sinner's prayer. But everyone I know will remember the day they were baptized, where they were baptized, who was with them, and even the smells and sounds, because it's such a tactile experience. God is giving us a way to mark a moment in our lives with tangible assets that help us embed it in our, our memory so that when we do sin again, when we do have these moments of doubt, the memory of baptism is so much thicker. It's it's just a it's a it's a stake that you drive thick in the ground, and you can keep going back to it. So for many reasons, baptism is a brilliant gift of God. Man, that's good. Get your notepad ready. <laughs> get your pen. Get your pencil ready. We're taking notes. I love. He said, "I'll give you one Easter egg." I'm going to tell you what. This whole podcast is going to be filled with Easter eggs today. Because there was stuff yesterday he was popping into and out of, and you and I were sitting together, and I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Oh, yeah, we're, we're going to bring that up today because, really, that's that's the goal. Our purpose, we say as a church, is to rethink life the way God intended. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, that mission statement isn't just to sit around and think. However, we, we need to think and understand mm -hmm. this. It's because we believe that that is Romans 12, too. You know, it, yeah. it needs to a renewed mind. It leads to a transformed life, and that's what we ultimately are looking for. Um, when you came right out the shoot yesterday, I, I was telling you earlier before we even started the podcast, right into Mark 1, 1, and you were like, let's just talk about the good news. Mm -hmm. Mark opens up in the beginning the good news of the Messiah, of the Son of God, and, and I realized in a moment, especially with the people that attend our church and then maybe the people that listen to this podcast or watch on YouTube, there are a lot of people that just sit around. They don't even really know what the word gospel good news mm. is. As you said, we just now think it's a religious term, but it wasn't originally that. It was a political term. Yeah. So maybe unpack that just for a moment. And I got some questions around that for you. 
Yeah, so let's get your since, popcorn ready, guys. Since the post Sunday podcasters are like a cut above, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the actual Greek word. It's made up of two words, you angelion. Angelion, you hear the word angel in it. And the Greek word angel is simply a messenger. Might be a divine messenger, could be a human messenger, but it's, it's a messenger. You, we've got a lot of you words even in English, like euthanasia is good death. You means good. So you, angelion, is a good message or good news. It's, it's simply that. The context, as we mentioned in the message, is a political term, good news for the empire. The emperor or a general uh, has won a war, maybe gotten married, had a baby. It's good news for the empire. So when Mark, writing from Rome, uses the word good news to open up his gospel, he's saying to all the Romans, good news. Like we have a empire-shaking message right now. And it wasn't, it wasn't good news about the emperor. It was the emperor of emperors, or as we would say, the king of kings. Now, this word also, I'm going to say the Greek word again, euangelion. Maybe you hear the word evangelism. E-U in English becomes E-V, so evangelism. And that freaks people out. It's like, oh, man, I don't know if I can evangelize someone because I don't know the Bible well enough or I don't, I don't have all the answers or what if they ask me a question or what if I offend someone and push them away? All of those are decent questions, but they're irrelevant to sharing good news. Like everyone who is a Chiefs fan today is sharing their good news. Whenever uh, a girl gets engaged and wears a ring on her finger, all of a sudden, like I taught in college, right? So anytime a girl got engaged, she all of a sudden started asking a lot of questions, just raising that left hand in class, you know, <laughs> let everybody see the rock. Good news is easy to share. And if we could stop thinking about good news as answering people's questions or having all the answers and just telling people the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. Now, how in the world is that political in our context? Mm. It's political. And if I could, so let me just set the stage here. I did a lot of work on this. I was tell, telling Tim, my PhD dissertation was on the politics of Jesus. Which I thought, you know, there's two things you don't talk about in polite company, politics and religion. So I'm going to talk about both of them right here up front. What's fascinating is politics is, is actually about um, creating a community. Polis is the Greek word for city. So you're creating a community of people together. In order to be political, I'm getting deep in the weeds here. So if they have their pencils for. out. Go. Four th- you have to have four things. Number one, you have to be public, not private. So a political science professor is not political. He is a professor. It's private. It's not for everybody. Second, you have to have an identifiable group of followers. Did Jesus have that? Absolutely. Third, you have to have an agenda. Something you're trying to accomplish for the community that you're developing. And fourth, you have to have power. Here's where we get kind of spun up with Jesus. Jesus isn't political. He doesn't have power. Really, he does have power. He's an incredible amount of power. The difference is, and this is super cool because we're in an election year, Jesus is the only politician up to his time in human history. I, and I've read the Roman documents, the Latin documents, the, the Greek documents, religious and non-religious. He is the only politician that used power only for the powerless. Every other politician used power 
to self-promote or self-protect. And here's this is a bit of a tangent, but in the famous power passage, Mark 10, 45, James and John say, say to Jesus, I want to sit at your right and your left hand. And Jesus never rebukes them for that. The other apostles are are pretty ticked about it, not because they asked for power, but because they beat them to the punch. And Jesus said this, I'm going to quote it, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, those who are rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The Greek phrase, those who are, are seen as, or those who are perceived as rulers of the Gentiles, it's actually would be more accurately translated those who present themselves as rulers of the Gentiles. Mm. They're self-promoting. They rule it over them. They overlord it. In Mark's worldview, literary worldview of Mark, there's only two rulers of the Gentiles, yeah, Pilate, Pilate and Herod. Yeah. What happened to Herod? Well, he cut off the head of John the Baptist. Why? Because his pubescent stepdaughter, danced a licentious dance, and he made a foolish promise out of lust. And when she came in, her mother said, I want the head of John the Baptist. She came in and told that to Herod. He sobered up instantly because he didn't want to do it, but he did it. He capitulated to the request of a pubescent teen answering for her vengeful mother. Now, why would a leader do that? Because the, here's the rule. This is the rule of all leadership. He was ruled by his desire to be seen as a ruler. He presented himself as a ruler, and then that rulership was really, he was hijacked. Mm. He was blackmailed yep. for his ruler. Cool. Pilate is the other major ruler of the Gentile. What did he do? Crucified Jesus. Did he want to? Absolutely not. But when the Jews threatened him, they blackmailed him. If you don't give us what we want, we will tell Caesar you're no friend of Caesar's. And he caved in. Why? Because he was a slave to his desire to be seen as a ruler. You see this in politics, in business, in families. This is the rule of leadership. And the reason we have difficulty thinking of Jesus as political is because we don't know what it's like to use power for anything but self-promotion, or self-protection. And Jesus only used power for the powerless. And if leaders, whether you're in business right now, maybe you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're in a political position, if you decide that you will use your power and influence only for the powerless, you will be a leader like Jesus, and then you will be free from the perceptions and demands of the people who see you as a leader. Wow. Bombs. So as I was reading the Roman documents this morning and the Latin documents uh, before we arrived on. <laughs> In preparation. Here's the beauty yeah. of what just happened. Yeah. We are eight words in to Mark chapter one, and we just unpacked Dude. all of that yeah. in, a, in a moment. Yeah. And as you mentioned yesterday, the Messiah, Son of God, speaking to both parties. My, my question would be, especially for our listeners right now, people in our church, people that just tap in from all over. So you're saying Jesus was political. So what do I do as a person of faith? Or what do you do with the people that come in and go, we're looking for a church that doesn't talk about politics, mm -hmm. especially this year when it, you know just politically infused all year long. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be at a level we've never experienced and seen before. 
How do you respond to those types of people or those comments? That, and I am in a church that we will never promote a candidate on either side of the aisle, and here's why. Our king is above those two. And if I lower myself to wor- worldly politics, I am short-circuit. I'm putting my trust not only in the king of kings, but also in a national entity. Now, look, I'm a proud American. Don't get me wrong. I love this country, and I will vote in the election, and I will, I will use my conscience to—I will vote my conscience to improve my community. But let's make, make no mistake. My hope is not in any candidate on this earth. It is in Jesus. I'm going to tell you why that sounds like a, like a religious kind of statement. So let me, let me address it from a, with, through a political lens. Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. He studied why people make decisions. This is not just America. This is global, and it's not just contemporary. This is through space and time. There are five major reasons why people make decisions. And you, it's a very complicated and long book. You don't need to read it all. Just look at his, his um, TED Talk. Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. And he's not conservative, and I would be way more conservative than him, but he was a political advisor for President Clinton, and part of the reason that Clinton won is Jonathan Haidt taught him to speak Republican. In other words, he told Clinton what the concerns were for the other party, and he was able to address those concerns and get some buy-in and that helped him get elected. There are five reasons people make major decisions. If you are politically on the left, and it doesn't matter what country you're in or what century you live in, if you're on politically on the left, you will basically focus on two of the five reasons that we make decisions, compassion and individual freedom. If you're on the political right, you will give approximately equal weight to all five, which then would include also law and order, insider versus outsider, and clean and unclean. Now, you can unpack that uh, on your own time with Jonathan Haidt, but as a political advisor to Clinton, he's saying, here are the reasons we make decisions. What we have done as a church is when we advocate for a candidate on the right, we are basically excising those on the left. But there there are things that Jesus talked about that are very much compassion-oriented, freedom-oriented, individual-oriented. In fact, many of the people that Jesus prioritized would not feel comfortable in conservative churches because they don't fit the profile. If we lop off half of Jesus' concerns for people, we cannot be a Jesus church. So when I say that I'm not going to advocate a particular candidate, it is because I need those who are different politically than me, different socially than me, different economically than me. And as a statement of fact, the early church in the Roman Empire was the only institution, period, that had rich, poor, slave-free, male, female, east, west, because we, we actually know how to overcome prejudice. And we saw it last night in the Super Bowl. I guarantee you that there is some racism in the locker room of both teams. 
but not on the field. I guarantee you that in an army, there's racism in a barracks. There's sexism in a barracks, but not on the battlefield. When the bullets start to fly, the only color I care about is the color of your uniform. And when Jesus is our King and Lord, then all of my petty interests and priorities, all of my, all the diversity, and I, I love diversity. We need diversity. But we will not have diversity until we have unity over one who is above every opinion, political or otherwise. Wow. Yeah. We unpacked that in our last session in New York, and I had never heard that. We got to spend some time on a whiteboard with that. Yeah. Go back and look that up. So I would highly encourage everyone, watch the TED Talk. If you like to read and you like a long book, grab the book. Um, we could go down a whole trail on that today because yes, <laughs> I got a lot of questions just in my own head. Um, but I, I do want to steer us back into the, the text here um, because – I want everybody to know you're also a tour guide and you know for Israel. Yeah, yeah. You lead your own trips. You you do that. You've spoken about that. You've got videos and YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff, um, which is just fascinating to watch and, and to see those. And with the book, I believe you have video clips as well that go along with the chapters and everything like yeah. that with Quest fifty two. Um, but you 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 left Mark one one and, and then rolled into John the Baptist the character and being the forerunner and the prophecy of Isaiah and all of that, and then how the people were coming out to him to be baptized. And I told you and Johnny and I were sitting there, I'm sitting there going, man, this is what I love about God's word is that I've read it. I don't know how many times I've studied it in school, studied as a pastor. We we study to preach and teach real people, real place, real time. Yeah. You know, that's huge for us. That, that, that puts us into the context. I never took John, the real person, and put him in the real place in this moment that he was on the other side of the river calling them out. That, all of a sudden, when I just saw it in your, your video clip, you sent me as kind of a teaser, and then you said it again on Sunday, I just sat in that for a while. And, and at first, I went, man, I missed that. But at the same time, I was riveted and fascinated by what you said, what it meant for him to be on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to... I'm going to unpack that, but let me just give a big word, okay? Don't drop it on your foot. It's heavy. Recapitulation. Recapitulation is a concept that something happens, and it's kind of a teaser moment, and it's going to, we're going to revisit it again later, only it will be more real. So think of, a, think of a middle school girl. She has her binder out, and she loves Johnny. And so she puts a heart, and Johnny, and XOXOXO, and then she starts to uh, list her children that she's going to have with Johnny. Now, the girls listening might go, yeah, I kind of did that, or maybe that was stupid, but I saw another girl do that. When she does get married, it may not be to Johnny, but it will be to a man she loves. And then she begins to have children. It may not be the same names, but she is naming her children. What happened in middle school, as imperfect and transitory as it is, actually will have a future reality. Now, I've just described to you the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have these moments. You have these entities like the, the temple or Passover. And like at Passover, the, the angel of death passes over and you've got lambs that are killed and they go, oh, okay, that's, that, I mean, that's a big deal. And then Jesus says, this is me. Or, or, or you have like a Moses 
and the Bible prophesies that one like Moses will come. And actually, Moses didn't get into the promised land. So Jesus comes and gets into the promised land. Same thing with King David, and on and on it goes. So that's recapitulation. What we're talking about at the Jordan River is recapitulation. The first time we see the, that spot on the Jordan River, and it's the same spot, could have been 100 yards downstream, 100 yards upstream, but it was at that spot that the Israelites passed over the Jordan River, miraculously stopped upstream, and they walked through on dry ground. And that was the moment that Israel became a nation and entered into the promised land. Okay, That was approximately 1440 B.C. Fast forward then to 30 or about, it was actually about 27 AD, could have been around 30 AD. We're not exactly sure. Jesus is there. John the Baptist has gone out of Israel and crossed the Jordan. He, he's, he's on foreign soil. He's outside of the country as he crosses the river and he's calling all Israel, come out to me and we're going to pass back into Israel through the Jordan River, through baptism, it was a recapitulation. And so though the baptism of the Israelites were individual, they were repenting for their own sins, they were, it was also a national repentance and a national revival. Now, what I didn't say yesterday is from that spot in the Jordan River, it's just a few miles away, there's a community called Qumran. And these are the people that saved these scrolls. You remember in 1948, they found all these scrolls that were 2,000 years old. That monastic community in Qumran had already done what John was calling the Israelites to do. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving Israel. They're hiding in the desert. Now, they didn't actually cross the River Jordan, so John the Baptist is more radical even than Qumran. Now, Qumran, they hated the high priest. And they were ready to install their own high priest as soon as Jerusalem fell. So this, again, is a political entity. They are wanting the Messiah to come and make things right. So when John the Baptist, in the shadow of Qumran, we're talking maybe 10 miles away, on a clear day, you can see the mountains where Qumran is from the baptismal site. John the Baptist, in the shadow of Qumran, is calling people to do what the Qumranites were calling them to do, only he's more radical because you leave the nation to come back in. Recapitulation. There is a third event at that very spot that I didn't mention. When Elijah, the greatest miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament, was taken up in a whirlwind, he took his mantle, slapped the waters of the Jordan, it parted, he walked through on dry ground, backwards of what Israel had done, and he was taken up in a whirlwind. And he put his mantle on Elisha, who went back into Israel. And this is interesting. Elisha, S-H, asked God for a double portion of what Elijah had. Count the miracles. He actually did twice the miracles of Elijah. So this is a place of transition. It's the transition when Moses gave leadership to Joshua and Joshua led them in. It's when Elijah put his mantle on Elisha and Elijah left in a whirlwind, uh, a flaming chariot, and Elisha entered back in. And it's when Jesus went to John and John put his mantle on Jesus and Jesus went back in 
and led the disciples into a, a new nation. Shut it down. Oh, I'm not done. Oh, he's not. I know he's not. So I, here's what I'm pinging for a second here because I'm thinking Moses and the nation of Israel going through the Red Sea, the waters parting. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's baptism there in, in the sense yep. of what God was doing. And then you have the nation of Israel going into the, the promised land, the Jordan River parting. You have now Elijah and Elisha parting, and now you have Jesus and John the Baptist standing there yeah. in the same place. As you were saying yesterday, these are all these Genesis moments mm-hmm. of of a new beginning, a new start, a new origin, but it's all God is using water in the, almost the same places, obviously the Red Sea, not, but in the same picturesque form Yeah, that now carries all the way to us. Yeah, and it was actually the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, what, chapter 10, used the crossing of the Red Sea with Moses saying they were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, which is the Holy Spirit, and into the sea, recapitulation with our own baptism. Wherever that is, we are baptized in the same thing. Moses is given way to Jesus. The Red Sea is given way to the waters of our baptism. And the cloud, uh, fire by night and cloud by day, was the Holy Spirit. And we have that not out ahead of us leading us, but inside us leading us. And that was the promise of John's baptism, that someday Jesus would come and baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Wow. It's rich. Man. That's the never-ending story, about. baby. That's, that's, why we, what, that's what we call it. That's what okay, I'm so for those about. of you who maybe you haven't been baptized as an adult, maybe maybe your parents made a decision for you, but you've not made that adult decision. So you're thinking, wow, should I, should I do that? Let me tell you what's on offer, and l- let me tell you what's coming next. Where did Jesus go from the waters of baptism? He goes back into Israel, but into the wilderness. And it was actually, Mark says, the Spirit of God thrust him. That Greek word, it would be like if I put my hand or my foot in the small of your back and thrust you. That's the kind of the violent nature. The Holy Spirit threw him into the wilderness. How long is he there? 40 years or 40 days. Now, this is recapitulation. It, this is Jesus is doing right what all of Israel did wrong. Israel was in the wilderness, as we know, 40 years, right? How long does it actually take to walk with old men from Egypt to the promised land? 40 days. And they got there in 40 days. And that's when they sent the spies in to evaluate the land. And the spies came back, and two of them said, yeah, we can take it. Ten of them said, uh, they're too big. Walls are too thick. And God said, okay, if you don't have faith, take another lap. And for 40 years, they wandered in the, in the wilderness. Jesus comes, and he does right what Israel did wrong. But you're going to have to go in the wilderness. So for those of you that get baptized into Christ, you've got a wilderness experience coming. And the temptation of Jesus, you're not going to, like, you don't sidestep that. He can be crucified for you, but he can't be tempted for you. That's, that's going to be on you. Wow. Wow. That was the part you were. That was the part that was just blue, mind blown. It was just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we began to kind of tap into this last year with the Passover and the symbolism and just real places, real people, real time, seeing everything, connecting the pieces of God's story, right? And what he's in, intended from the very beginning with, man, with humanity. And it's, it's just been so beautiful. 
I love the 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 interpretation or or how Mark described uh, the heavens opening up. Yeah. As Jesus is getting baptized, can you talk to us a little bit about that and the symbolism? Because there's there's two places that he 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 ascribed that word, and so kind yeah, of the heaven, the heavens yeah. are torn yeah. open. A uh, pretty violent word, and Mark only uses as you mentioned two places here at baptism. The heavens are torn, and then at the crucifixion, the curtain was torn. Same word, only two places in all of Mark's gospel that word is used. If you read Josephus, that ancient historian of the days of Apostle Paul, he describes that curtain as uh, the curtain was as thick as the palm of your hand, and it was embroidered top to bottom with scenes of the heavens, the stars and the moon. So in both instances, and Mark would know this, Mark was a young man who lived in Jerusalem. His mother, Mary, had a house that was the house of the Last Supper probably the same house of Acts chapter 1, where the 120 gathered. So Mark is a young buck in Jerusalem. He's been to the temple a thousand times. He's seen the curtain. He's seen the embroidery. So even if we are unaware of what was on the curtain, Mark definitely knew it was the heavens on the curtain. So in two instances, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he was baptized for the remission of our sins, And when he was crucified for the remission of our sins, the heavens were torn open. When you were um, speaking yesterday, you were, you put emphasis on the fact that this is the the first place we find the Trinity in scriptures Mm. all in one place and the magnitude of that. And what John is trying to, I'm sorry, Mark is trying to get you to see, to understand. But as we were talking, not only is it, you know, God speaking scripture, there's multiple different scriptures playing out even within yeah. this moment. So the, 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 the baptism of Jesus has this profound you know, depth to it that the early, the pre-Christian may be like, oh, Jesus got baptized. I guess maybe that's why I should. But Mark is showing you so much more is happening mm. within the moment what, what God is wanting you to see through the scriptures playing out. And then as you said, the, the, the triune God being there in that moment, kind of unpack that for everyone that's listening and, and wanting a little bit more of that. Yeah. Now, now obviously, God is everywhere, the, the word uh, omnipresence, but he manifests different places in different, like the burning bush would be a manifestation of God or maybe a vision, a manifestation of God. I'm thinking about Isaiah 6, this vision of God. But the physical presence of the Trinity in one place, that is exceedingly rare. And you have it here. In the baptism, you have the Holy Spirit, that the heavens are torn open, and the Spirit comes down as a dove. Let me riff on that for a minute. I'll get to the Father's voice in a second. There are only three descriptions, physical descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and they're all this kind of chaotic quaking. You have the, the fire of Pentecost, flames coming down. Now, we watch flames go up, but these flames were coming down. We've all seen a flame. It's kind of, it, it, it quivers. A dove, any, any of you bird hunters out there, you know when doves land, they're not gentle. They're like, they're, all, they're erratic. And they land, and there's just this fluttering. And then you have Genesis 1 and verse 2, where the Spirit of God hovered over the chaotic waters. The Hebrew word is meruchefeth. It's a, it's a quaking. 
And here's what I draw from this. I could be wrong, but as near as I can tell, the Holy Spirit is a quaking of energy. And he quakes, get this, wherever there is chaos. The Holy Spirit is much like your mother 30 minutes before guests arrive at the house. <laughs> Quivering, quaking, running about, trying to put everything in order. And the, just a pastoral word if you're, for our post-Sunday podcasters. If you have something in your life that's out of order, you will... You just listen, pay attention, watch. You will sense the quivering of the Holy Spirit to bring order out of chaos in your life. That's what the Spirit does. This is a chaotic moment for Jesus. It's the beginning of the ministry, and so much could go wrong so fast. And the Holy Spirit is just quaking in the presence to make sure that as he begins his public ministry, it is ordered and right and directional. Then you have the voice of God. Seldom heard even in the life of Jesus, there's three times where you hear the, the voice of God. One is here at baptism. The second, another huge event, transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were the only ones there to hear it. And then you have the voice of God in the temple. This is Tuesday before Jesus is crucified on Friday. He will leave the temple that day. It's the last time Jesus was in the temple, and the voice of God comes. Those are big events. God speaks, and the first two times, transfiguration and baptism, God quotes the same passage. This is my son. This is my son. Now, if you follow that back to the Old Testament, he is quoting from Psalm 2. I don't, without getting into the weeds, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 should be read as a single psalm, part A and part B. It begins with, blessed is the man. It ends with, blessed is the man. It's real, like it's a cool bookend, and it's a way of introducing the entire worship experience of God. The Psalms are the worship book, John. It's important to you, right? It's how you connect with God. So it begins, the psalm begins with the major prophecy of Jesus. Now, you're going to have multiple prophecies of Jesus through the psalm, Psalm 118, Psalm 110, uh, Psalm 22, the, the crucifixion. But Psalm 2, three different verses predict Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 are quoted by the Apostle Peter after he's been threatened by the Sanhedrin. He comes to a prayer meeting. This is hilarious. He reads the opening of this psalm and says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against this anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Peter quotes that. And then, this is bizarre, he's praying. He quotes this scripture to God, and then he tells God what it means. He says, the kings, you know, that was Pilate and Herod, and, and then the, uh, the rulers, that was the Sanhedrin and the governors. He interprets it for God, and then he does something. Okay, Tim, I'm just going to talk to you. For people on a Sunday podcast, I'm, I'm getting really in the weeds here, so I don't want to lose you, but there is a term called imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer. You see it in the Psalms, imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory Psalm is when I pray against you. God, dash their heads against the rock. God, break their teeth. It really is a violent kind of a Psalm, which actually is psychologically really healthy because we hear David speaking violence, but not see him doing violence. Now, he was a warrior. He did violence. Don't get me wrong. But when he prayed imprecatorily against his son Absalom, that's he's. He's expressing his anger to God against Absalom. This is Psalm 4. 
but he ne- he told his own warriors, "Don't you touch that boy." Mm. So isn't this healthy? If you can if you can speak out your anger, you won't act out in anger. So that's what those imprecatory psalms are all about. But the imprecatory psalms have a formula. It begins by saying, "Lord God, sovereign." That's point one. Point two is, look at what they did. Point number three, God, I want you to do something about it. And then it describes what I want you to do about it. Peter uses this as an imprecatory psalm. He says, sovereign Lord, see what they've done to us. See what they've said. You made a promise in your word that you would be just, that you would would wreak vengeance on those who are against your anointed. But then Peter does something incredibly, it's incredible. The imprecatory psalm always ends by saying, God beat them. But what does Peter do? He ends his imprecatory psalm by saying, God, give us power to do more miracles. But what had gotten them in trouble? Doing miracles. He is asking that God's punishment fall on him so that he could bring salvation to his enemies. Imprecatory psalm changed after Jesus because now instead of asking God to put suffering on others, you ask God to put suffering on you so that like Jesus, you could suffer vicariously for the very one who is punishing you. So this particular psalm, that that was the first prophecy of Jesus. The second prophecy of Jesus is verse 7, this is my son. The third is verse 9, which is he rules with an iron scepter. We see that in Revelation. The reason, and in Revelation, particularly chapter 12, this son of God has the iron scepter to wreak vengeance. We are able to reverse imprecatory prayers. Instead of praying against our enemies, we pray for our enemies, and we pray that we could suffer for our enemies. This is so counterintuitive, but the reason we can do that is we know the one who has an iron scepter has already suffered for us so that we can suffer for others like Jesus suffered for others because someday he's going to bring total justice. I'm going to say one more thing. This is, to me, very, it's huge. When we talk about the cross of Christ, Jesus died for your sins, right? He, He died for your sins. That is absolutely true. Jesus died for your sins so that you could have eternal life with him. But the cross of Jesus is not the only cross the New Testament talks about. Johnny, he tells you to carry a cross. When the church bears our cross, it is also, another big word, vicarious suffering. Jesus died for your sins, right? You suffer for the sins of the world. When Jesus died, we were spiritually saved. When the church carries our cross, the world is socially saved. Staying on that thread for a second, because I think that's yesterday. There, there are so many people, and the people that will tap in that big question of why was Jesus baptized? And you know, you went back to Matthew, mm-hmm. who adds some pieces to it because he he was there. Mark wasn't, um, in the sense of being able to see it, eyewitness, and he talks about for the fulfillment of righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, John the Baptist is saying, no, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, I have to, or you have to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And I think that was the moment for a question that everybody has. Well, if he's Jesus and he's perfect 
and he's sinless. Yeah. Why did he have to be baptized? But as you said, that suffering, that, that the, the cross taking our sins also plays a part in the baptism of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And when he was baptized, he was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 1.4. It's a very clear statement. The purpose of baptism is forgiveness of sins. When you're baptized, it's for the forgiveness of sins. And the objection is, well, Jesus didn't have any sins. Oh, yeah, he did. He didn't have sins of his own, but he willingly took on the sins of the nation in that moment. And just as the nation crossed through Jordan, the Jordan River, and became a nation, Jesus, on behalf of the nation, repented of their sins and was baptized for them. Now, I want to show you something. I didn't say this yesterday, kids. This is, this is so cool. Israel. Who is Israel? It's a Bible quiz question. He has a name. Jacob. He was the father of the 12 tribes. Israel was a person before Israel was a nation. So Israel, the person, became Israel, the nation, and Israel, the nation, became Israel, the person in Jesus. And then the person of Jesus becomes a new nation through the church. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's rich. Man, I, I'll tell you, I, I grew up, you know, and you, you, you grew up and you just, you see Jesus's life and you want to model that life. Yeah. And so baptism was always a, a, a model for my interpretation of a model for us to be able to follow in our lives. And so we, we take it that way, but, the, but I never saw it that way mm. in, in what we talked about yesterday uh, and today, you know, and, and that question really never hit me. Why, why did he need to be baptized? It's, that's the reality. I never really actually thought about that um, because I, my interpretation was always just, I, I just got to follow the model and Jesus is doing this to model an example for us. And yes, there has truth to it, but then there's so much layers. There are layers. It becomes, it's just a revelation for us, you know. It is difficult for Americans to think communally like that yeah. because we're so individualistic. I mean, to illustrate how individualistic we are, what is the most individualistic part of a church service? Well, communion. Yeah. Wait a second. It's communion. But we make it about us and like a moment of meditation. And so it's it's tough for us to think communally like that, but thinking biblically Baptism is more than a symbol. It is symbolic, but it's more than a symbol. It, it absorbs reality into it in a, in a powerful way. Wow, that's good, man. Well, we, I don't know if you wanted to go into the PSPQ, but we usually uh, will we'll, we'll ask our listeners to yeah. um, just provide us a question, you know, whether it could be from season one, we're in season two now um, with the never-ending story, or it could be with the way of the Messiah. Send us questions. We want to hear from you. So there was a question that was submitted to us uh, yesterday, and uh, we want to give you some time to to put your thoughts on that as yeah. well and, and get your answer on that. But uh, we have producer Alexis with us today. What is going on, Alexis? Hey, everybody. So the question for today is, Pastor Mark talked about the importance of baptism in a believer's life. When should we get baptized? Is there a timeline? Also, does baptism save us? Mm, mm. So uh, can I uh, interject here a little bit? My kids, I have twins, a boy and girl. They're 10 years old. They've talked to me 
pretty frequently about baptism. Yeah. And I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to say this openly to you guys. I've been very, I, I've been protective of that. I don't want it to be something that is, my friends are doing it. My friend, you know, it mm-hmm. looks cool. And the way that we do it at church at the beach, it's phenomenal. Who doesn't want to, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to protect that because I, 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 I don't know. Maybe I just, I want them to have a moment in their relationship. I want them to own this in their walk with God. And, and maybe I'm looking for something, but at the same time, I'm trying, I'm trying to not be so tight with that because I don't want to, I don't want to be the lid to their opportunity in in, in that area of growth with Jesus. So uh, I want to add that piece in because as a father, my, my kids have that desire to be baptized and I want them to, but Mm -hmm. I want them to in in a, in a, in a season of their life that is, that just, it, it, it really begins this journey for them, you know, in life. So I don't know, you know, if you want to interject on that. Yeah. A lot of parents are asking the same question. Yeah. Uh, and I would say in answer to the first question, when should I get baptized? You should get baptized when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he died for your sins. Both those halves are important, who he is and what the cross means. If your children cannot articulate what sin is, like, I've rejected God. God told me to do this, and I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want to do. I'm going to be the God of my own life. When a child can be aware of that, then the child is beginning to understand the need for a Savior. There's no reason to be baptized if you don't realize a need for a Savior. So different children will mature at different ages. I was nine when I got baptized, and I understood full well I was a sinner. When that age of accountability, it's an artificial term, age of accountability, when that is will differ from child to child. But when they begin to realize I'm in rebellion against God, I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, they're fully ready to be baptized. Okay. Now, if you ask the question, like, do they understand everything? Well, baptism is called, in the Bible, new birth. How much, how much do you need to understand to, get, to be born? Uh, I need to get out of here. That's all you need to know. <laughs> and if the kid is going, no, I need to get out of here. Yeah. That's all they need to know. They don't know what it means to submit a 16-year-old life to Jesus or a 21-year-old life to Jesus or a 30-year-old life to Jesus. But you know what? I'm 60. I don't know what it means to submit a 75-year-old life to Jesus, mm-hmm. but I'm still committed to him. And those two realizations that I need a Savior and he is that Savior have marked every stage of my life. Mm-hmm. Now, some people, and this is true in our church, I know it's true uh, in the Orlando area, a lot of people come from a, a, a Catholic background. And I actually have great reverence for Catholicism. My first graduate degree was from a Catholic university. And the Catholic doctrine says that you have to be baptized to be saved. Therefore, they will parents make a decision for children to be baptized, well, sprinkled. The, the Greek word is, baptism, baptizo, means to dip or dunk. So sprinkling is different than that, but that's the the accepted practice in the Catholic Church. I I actually think it's an honorable practice to devote your children to the Lord. 
So my neighbor a couple weeks ago, uh, Jeremy came over and he goes, listen, I like, I really want to get baptized, but my mom died a month ago. And I feel like I would be dishonoring my mom if I got baptized, if I got immersed as an adult. I said, oh, Jeremy, your mother right now is with Jesus in heaven. Jesus commanded you to be immersed. Do you think your mom standing with Jesus is going to go, oh, no, that's a mistake. Like, you're dishonoring me. What you're doing, being immersed as an adult, is actually affirming the decision your parents made for you. Like what they decided for you as a baby, we, we want this child to grow up and know God and love God. Do you think any parent in the presence of Jesus is going to go, no, I, I, d- don't, don't do that because that, that's not what I intended. Wow. Oh, man, no, they want you to affirm your faith and your declaration of faith. I, I closed the sermon with that statement, Tim, that baptism is actually a sermon. This is First uh, Peter 3.21. It is a prayer to God for a clean conscience. It is the only perfect sermon that anyone will ever preach, and you can preach it without words. And if you are Catholic and you are sprinkled as a baby and you've you've come to uh, Genesis Church and gone, man, I want to be immersed, and you love the church and you love how the Bible is relevant here and how the community is engaging here, and you want your family to see what you see, Probably the only time they're going to come to the church or come to the beach is when you're getting baptized. This is a sermon that your family will watch, and you can't screw it up. You just are buried in the water with Jesus and raised again to walk a new life. So let's put a bow tie on this. Yes. The let's go moment. We have found ourselves, in, and I told you I picked up on this in some of your content, that we will say baptism is an outward expression of an mm-hmm. inward decision. But you declare it's so much more than that. And well, the Bible if, declares it's more than yes. that. Yes. And so for those that are sitting around, because we, we had people yesterday. We, we have people that are, you know, they're wrestling through, but my parents are Catholic. I may be mm-hmm. dishonoring them or I'm waiting to this moment to, to finally do it. So you just answered a lot of that. But that reality that it is much more than just an outward expression yeah. of an inward decision. It's more of an allegiance. Just kind of bring mm. that all in right there. For yeah, me. Here's, here's the big bow at the end. And the question, uh, thank you for answering the, asking those questions on our behalf. Does baptism save you? Mark 16, 16, baptism now saves you. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. First Peter 3, 21. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the flesh. Now, some people are freaking out right now going, no, it's faith that saves us. I get it. I'm not saying you can't be saved without baptism. I'm saying the king, like Jesus on the cross, the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The guy wasn't baptized. Of course, he couldn't really be baptized in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But he's the king. And if the king says you're saved, you're saved. With or without baptism, he is the king. But the king also told you, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if he's your king, do what he says. You are saved, not by the water of baptism, but by the seal of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can seal you before baptism. He can seal you during baptism. He can seal you after baptism. But ours is not to argue theologically. Ours is to obey radically. 
And the word faith, if you say you believe in Jesus, the word faith is not is not what happens in your head or even in your heart. It is allegiance. The word pistis or faith. I think you would do yourself a favor every time you read faith, change it to faithful. Are you being faithful to Jesus? I believe in my wife, but just because I believe in her doesn't mean I'm faithful to her. And if I'm not faithful to her, I better not say I believe in you, right? Well, we all know that. These words, allegiance, fidelity, loyalty, that's what God is after. And you're not saved just because you think something in your head. The demons think those same things. You're saved because you give your allegiance to Jesus as he gave his allegiance to you. Yeah. Wow. They shall know that they are my disciples by the way they love, mm-hmm. right? By the way they obey, obedience, loyalty. Man, so rich, man. This this episode has been so, so rich. And, and like we said, guys, uh, the last two weeks have just, man, bookmark it. Bookmark it for this year and let it really propel you to what where God's directing you in your life. We hope that you desire uh, to take those steps of baptism. We offer those opportunities here at Genesis Church Orlando for you guys to be a part of that. And um, you can go to our website, genesischurchorlando.com, and check out some details on some upcoming dates on when we will have baptisms available um, on site, but also our our, our our big event, Church at the Beach, that we, we just so love. It's one of our highlighted moments of the year. And so we hope that this is something that, that the, the Spirit of God's stirring in your heart uh, to do, but I uh, would love to see you out there. But yeah, any final thoughts, guys? Anything? Um, just thanks. Thank you for your willingness to come be a part of what's happening here, for your yeah. willingness to yeah. to coach a group of guys you didn't know and step into that. You've been doing that your whole life. Um, but sometimes when you sit in the seat you sit in, you don't realize the impact it's actually having in people's lives. And so I, I do want you to know you've had a profound impact in my life and and I look to continue to learn, even from afar. You know, I'm just, I'm a watch your sermons, read your stuff, mm. even when we can't connect and, and communicate on that level. But you've helped me become a better preacher, communicator. But above all that, I'm a geek for Jesus. Yeah. I'm a nerd. Yes, I mean, this yes, is this is. is it. So yeah. all the stuff you're unpacking, I'm going to go home and I'm just myself, not just the people listening through this pod. It's just going to, it's going to take me further where I want to go as a follower of Jesus. And, and so you, God is using you to do all of that. Thank and you, you could very easily say, Hey, I'm leading at this level and you guys are just kind of here right now, but you didn't your words. When I said, Hey, I'm going to use your quest of 52 and I, and some of the resources you said, how can I be a resource to Genesis? Wow. And so I joked on a text. I did come, come speak. And you hit right back with, I'm available Super Bowl Sunday. And that's just amazing. Like, Nail it down. Nail it down. So I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. It's fantastic. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Episode six. We hope it was a blessing for you guys. You can find us as we we say this every week. Find us on all social media platforms at Post Sunday Podcast. We'll have this up for you guys on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you choose to uh, have our audio, your audio, um, wherever you choose your audio. But also, too, we'll have it on YouTube. 
We'll also have it. You can find us at, at Post Sunday Podcast on YouTube uh, to have that visual aid. Um, follow us, hit that notification button as well to be notified when our next video will be out. But we hope that you were blessed. Submit your questions as well to post sundaypodcast at gmail.com. We'll love to get those answered for you guys and continue on in the way of the Messiah. We're so thankful to have you guys listening and watching. We hope that you were blessed today. Until next week, grace and peace. Thanks for listening to the Post Sunday Podcast presented by Genesis Church. A place to go further, discover more, and to learn things you possibly never have. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Genesis Church Orlando and at Post Sunday Podcast. Till next time, grace and peace to all of you.